This is Jim Cowan from the Collaborative for Student Success, and this is the Route K-12 Exploring Education Recovery Podcast. Each week, we travel the country on a kind of road trip to talk about the ways federal recovery dollars are being used in states to reshape education. Along the way, we'll hold up the best examples with the hope that those practices are repeated in other schools. Today, I'm excited to be talking to Connecticut's Commissioner of Education, Charlene Russell Tucker. We invited the commissioner today because her state has been out front on transparency and the use of data when evaluating the effectiveness of education practices. You're going to hear her talk about a unique partnership they've built with private and public universities to gauge which investments are helping the most kids. It's a practice we hope to see play out in other states as well. Commissioner, welcome, and thank you for taking time to join us today. Thank you, Jim. It's wonderful to be here with you. We're approaching this podcast under a theme of road tripping, right? So before we dive into the topics around education recovery, I have to ask you, because we ask each one of our guests, what was one of your most memorable road trips? And is there a song that captures it for you? That's a great opening question, Jim. So for me, road trip memory and song goes together. Maybe a little known fact is that I've recorded a couple of musical projects. So for, for me, singing and putting music together, it happens in my head all the time. So when you think about road trips and just journey and distance, I'm always listening to different genres of music. And the key here is to be able to learn something new flawlessly right? So putting something in you, listen to it, learn it, and to be able to sing it flawlessly by the time I get to my destination. (laughs) Just as if you're in the recording studio and working on several cuts. I was not aware of this. And now I'm going to have to talk to your team to find out what those other musical ventures were for you, because now my interest is very much peaked. So I'm glad to have that nugget. I'm not sure if the rest of your team knows that or the rest of Connecticut knows that either. But (laughs) now we do. You heard it here first. Okay, so let's get into a little bit more on uh, the, the more meaty subject area around education recovery. And I just want to start by teeing up that it feels like that there's never really been more of an important time to have transparency and monitoring in our education system. And I say that because we know that that states have, have much like your own, has created initial plans for how to use the recovery funds, but we're just only seeing like a fraction of those dollars being used so far. And we know that the plans are, are probably going to evolve. So leaders like yourself aren't going to have the luxury of sort of long-term studies and analysis on those practices. You're going to need real-time information on what's working and what's not working so you can put those practices in motion fast, sooner rather than later. And full disclosure, that's exactly why we developed the Education Recovery Hub, um, which you're familiar with. And that platform and has been the impetus of us really starting a relationship, a strong relationship with your office, because we've been holding up a bunch of examples that Connecticut has taken on as an exemplar for how to prioritize things like transparency, sustainability, long-term evaluation. And that's been great to see amongst your team. Can you tell us a little bit more about Connecticut's approach and how you've sort of looked at the fundings as the, you know, the schools are struggling, but I, as you're starting to come back and, you know, in, in person and really starting to look at the learning loss problem. So Jim, thank you. And I really appreciate the ability to talk about Connecticut's approach. So as you likely know, there were three phases or three rounds of federal funding. And we're talking about the elementary and secondary school emergency relief or what we like to call ESSER funds. 
So three rounds that states received during the pandemic. And the first amount that we received, you know, it's grown over time for us in Connecticut. We've now total over $1.7 billion, 90% of which goes directly to our school districts and 10% remaining here at the state level for state level funded. So as for our approach, we've come to, to say that ESSER 1 uh, was about surviving, making sure school districts have the personal, the protection equipment they need, supplies to maintain safe and healthy schools. And with the second round, we set out collectively really to think about how our students can thrive. And so that included evidence-based methods to accelerate learning, to re-engage students and families with their school communities. And now with the American Rescue Plan, ESSER funding, we really thought about this as transforming our schools. This means, as you've mentioned in interviews that you've done on the road trip, utilizing bold strategies and rethinking as the pandemic has actually forced all of us, not only in our personal lives, but schooling in Connecticut to think differently. And so we began to rethink how time outside of school enhances learning with programs such as our summer enrichment grants, which I'll talk about later. Uh, you know, last year, our summer enrichment grants deployed over $8.6 million to deliver high quality accessible summer enrichment programs to more than 108,000 of our students here in Connecticut. And we're really excited and we'll make that link later about how we are able to get real-time information to inform uh, the work that we've done. But in summary here about our approach, I think a key kinetic approach that has served us well was really establishing investment priorities that they are interrelated and I believe foundational in achieving improved outcomes. Number one, investments in learning acceleration or academic renewal and student enrichment, as I mentioned before. Number two, investments in family and community connections. Number three, investments in social emotional well-being and mental health supports for students and staff. Number four, investments in strategic use of technology, uh, which includes developing staff and addressing the digital divide. And number five, investment in safe and healthy schools. So those priorities are foundational to all the work that we're doing here as we think about COVID recovery. How are you thinking about sustainability? Some schools are concerned about being able to fund those programs once the spending stops. How are you thinking about that? So that's a great question. In our guidance to our school districts, we've said to them, we encourage them to think strategically about two types of investments investments that are self-sustaining ones, and others that are focused on measurement and impact. And so by focusing on these types of investments, we can maximize both the short-term and the lasting impact of the federal funded. So instead of us thinking about the funding coming to an end and thinking about it as a funding cliff, which you will talk about, instead here we talk about creating a parachute instead of a cliff, to what we are saying is a safer landing when these funds go away. And how you do that is by collecting the evidence to support continued funding for strategies that work. And as you mentioned before, we are committed to data-informed policymaking, uh, which I know we'll talk about in a little bit more detail, but with data showcasing strategies and investments with high impact, I believe we'll be able to gather support from federal uh, colleagues and also a state government as well as private entities and philanthropies to sustain the, the funding. So we're basically saying, show us what works. If we can prove what works, then it's, we're better able to really 
require and ask for the support uh, for sustainability to prevent us from falling off this funding cliff. Would love to talk a little more about that as well, because Connecticut, and we've looked across the country, is one of the few states where we've seen this kind of intentional front-end thinking on how to use data to track the effectiveness of programs that are that are funded with with recovery dollars. We've been we've been looking, and your example keeps popping and percolating to the to the top as a really great method of doing this. In fact, it's the on the edu- education recovery hub. It's the most reviewed, most liked recovery practice that we have featured. We'd love how it's it's work with other universities in your states, it's work with other researchers. And we hear constantly about this need for actionable data. So how does it work? How, do, how is it set up? And we're anxious to make sure like other states see this as, as a great example. And full disclosure, we have talked with other members of your team about this to, to get a little more data, but I'm hoping that you can share a little more on the research collaborative. No, that's great. And, and thank you for uh, talking to our staff about that as well, because it's really important. And so this really is a collaboration and really a shout out to our our chief performance uh, officer who is really on the forefront of doing this for us. And, you know, what we've done is to set aside funding to connect with researchers in our state, private and public universities, like the likes of Yale and UConn and our Connecticut State Colleges and Universities and more, And so a part of this, we use our set-aside dollars to basically have these researchers look at, I call them problems of practice or what we're we're investing in, to say, tell us about the efficacy of the programs and the supports that we have in place and tell us about our outcomes. What are we getting? And so that really is what we've done. And it's it's really been really looked at as a groundbreaking, really, um, strategy and concept here because so many times, and you've alluded to this before, you have to wait for a long period of time for a program to end, right? right? And then you do the research to figure out what happens. Now, we're trying to do this in as real time as possible. So go back to our summer enrichment programs that we talked about. We had the collaborative or research collaborative at the end of last summer. They did research uh, and evaluation. They did site visits. They talked to program folks. They talked to students. And so we ended up with evaluation results about how did that program really work this past summer. And we immediately used that information to inform the new programs that we're setting up, actually pretty much getting ready to launch for this summer as well. So that is really what we're trying to do here, to get information about what works and to be able to make adjustments as necessary as we keep going forward. So, I mean, uh, it is a practice that I am looking at to really make it a part of standing operating procedure beyond our COVID. We really need to know if, as our state legislators are investing in programs and supports and services, why shouldn't we be able to answer that question very quickly? Is it working? And if not, why not? So that we can make adjustments as necessary. Yeah, it's a great point. And your team was very humble about the project because we were saying we're not seeing this in in other states. And we would love to find other states that are that are doing it. And they were a little bit surprised by that. And so we're scouring and, and asking others, like, if they know of other examples like this, please let us know because we, you know, we keep holding you guys up as the beacon on this one, but we'd love to see others doing it, doing it as well. So we appreciate what you all have started, at least what we're seeing right now. Connecticut is also one of the few states where we've seen 
you involve student voice in the consideration of how to use federal funding? How, how is that working? And what are they saying? Another exciting uh, project and initiative here that we've launched, again, Connecticut was first in the nation to launch a statewide student participatory budgeting campaign, a statewide civic engagement initiative, meaning we've allowed students to develop ideas and how they've used up to $20,000 of our state set-aside funding to reimagine their schools. Schools participated, they had an election, students had to vote for their favorite idea, and so this was our voice for change. That was what we called it. And in early April, we announced the winners, 54 schools across Connecticut, as well as five Commissioner's Choice Awards for particularly innovative projects that we saw from students. And Jim, they are saying a lot. Uh, And I am so proud of their students. They really took this seriously. They had great ideas. And we also mapped it back to the five priorities that we use for investment. So at least we gave them some guardrails as to what to be thinking about as they're planning their project. And so everything is aligned. And I have to tell you, the majority of the projects uh, that they came up with, the winning projects, were addressing social, emotional, and mental health supports. I am Mm -hmm. sure you're not surprised about that. Uh, But across the array, we've seen proposals where they thought about purchasing, translating earbuds, for example, for multilingual learners. These are students thinking about how to support other students in their their communities. Uh, They've uh, developed programs about nice uh, gardens, uh, outdoor gardens and spaces uh, for them to have outdoor classes and those kinds of things. So they really came up with great ideas, mentoring programs, leadership programs, and some of them even look at how to have community projects. So how, how can they engage the whole community in the work that they're doing? So we're really excited uh, about what they've put out. And this was a state initiative. We had our governor visiting students in schools, or lieutenant governor, I was out there listening to their pitch for their project projects and inviting them encouraging them to vote right on the initiatives towards the end. So we're really excited. Our website has all the initiatives there, again, by the categories, the priorities that we've talked about. And uh, it was just awesome just to see the leadership that they really engaged in and just how involved them they were, along with even some of their teachers. Some of the educators took it as a project-based learning opportunity and used it in classrooms. So we're really thrilled. We're now getting inquiry from some other states about how we put that together. But, you know, I always say it's not about them, that's our students, not about them without them. And so we really need to make sure we amplify their voice. They've got a lot that they want to share that we can put into practice. Got to feel empowering for them. And I would think for their teachers as well, to know that they're being heard at the highest levels in in the state and seeing results from that. So congratulations on, on that. The students that were hurt most by the pandemic are unfortunately same students that have historically been marginalized. Are there special considerations that Connecticut's approach is taking to education recovery to try to make sure that the resources reach them in particular? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Really important. Uh, We've noticed that we have students that you're exactly right, that were disproportionately impacted uh, by the pandemic. And we made sure in all our plans that this commitment to equity really was really central to everything that we were doing. So uh, we talked about uh, in our state plan and in our guidance to districts, uh, really stressed the importance of investing in evidence-based practices that's aimed at 
are those populations of students uh, disproportionately impacted? We're talking about students with disabilities or students who are multilingual learners or students who are experiencing homelessness. And we made sure that in our plans that we really ask for districts and also the work that we're doing to pay special attention uh, to that population of students uh, and making those connections. And it, again, it goes across the priorities, Jim. This is why I said the priorities was really central, uh, the investment priorities, because we're saying in academic recovery and renewal, make sure you're paying attention there. In family and community engagements, make sure that you're doing that there. As we're talking about social, emotional, and mental health supports, make sure that you're paying attention there. And so uh, that really is what we've done to call those out. And we continue to provide supports uh, to our, our educators, to our school districts, and actually to our entire community here, uh, because we know it's so critically important. The pandemic has really unearthed numerous challenges, but I also think comes with that tremendous opportunities. And it's about our systems aligning and working together to support them. Lastly, for each of our podcasts, we reach out to a parent for a question since their perspective is one of, if not the most important education recovery. This week, our question comes from Corey Shane from West Hartford, Connecticut. Hello, Commissioner. I know that Connecticut has made significant investments in education using COVID-era relief money. I'm curious as to how the department is engaging parents on those efforts. How do we stay informed and get a better idea about what's working in the state? Thank you. I so appreciate that question. Uh, And for me, family engagement is critical to educational success and outcome for students. And so this question is great timing because just uh, the other week, we held our second round of our ARP-ESSER stakeholder forums, which are facilitated by one of our external partners here, the State Education Resource Center. Uh, And I heard that even one of our participants in the room asked specifically about accountability, and we were able to share and talk about the collaborative, the research collaborative and the work that we're doing. Uh, But they're really opportunities. We've really amplified, not only, as we said, student voice, but parent voice, Uh, And we've used all kinds of forums uh, and all our stakeholder groups that we uh, we put together here at the department. Parent groups are a part of the equation uh, when we put them together. It is really important. And as we talk about all our best in class collaboration, a part of that is making sure organizations that are parent focused are connected to us and they know exactly what we are doing for investments. They understand our priorities. And we're also really circling back to share what we're learning and the outcomes. And so um, as a result, we're making sure that district plans are known. Uh, They know how to, and in that form, we share with them the website to go to so they can download all Mm -hmm. of our ESSER applications are online. They're publicly available. Uh, You know, she can go and take a look at what is it that the, the West Hartford Public School District planned for their investments. So as a parent, you can monitor if those things are truly happening. Certainly they can circle back to us. And so it really is important. Five years ago, I started the Commissioner's Roundtable for Family and Community Engagement in Education. And that was because I wanted to make sure parent voice was critically important to everything that we're doing. So we're really making sure that as we put information out there, that we're connecting to families, we're connecting to parents, We're hearing from them and they know how to access information that's readily available for them. So to make sure that they are in the know, they're critically important with everything that we do in education. They've got to be a key partner 
not only for districts to make sure they engage, but for the state to also make sure that we engage with them. And, and just finally, we have a diverse stakeholder mailing list group that we do everything we put out here for press conferences, press releases that we send it out to this group. And a lot of parent organizations, faith-based organizations, uh, parent-run organizations are a part of that to make sure that they're in the know and that they can disseminate them amongst uh, other families as well throughout the state. Commissioner, uh, thank you again for your time today. Before we go, I did notice the very last line of your bio, which reads, on a personal note, Ms. Russell Tucker believes in finding and fulfilling one's life purpose. And I thought that was a nice touch, and I hope that journey is going well for you. Congratulations on the great work that you and the entire team at the Connecticut State Department of Education are doing. I hope you all have a wonderful summer. So thank you again, and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you very much, Jim. Appreciate it. This is Jim Cowan from the Collaborative for Student Success. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Route K-12, Exploring Education Recovery, where each week we'll travel the country to showcase the ways federal recovery funds are reshaping schools. Along the way, we're talking to people doing the hard work to educate America's kids. Got a question or insight you'd like to share about what's going on in education? We'd love to hear it. Reach out to us at edgyrecoveryhub.org forward slash route K-12, or follow us on Twitter at our handle at Student Success.